Welcome to the Jurisprudence, a podcast on jurisprudence. I'm Nikos Stavropoulos. And I am George Letzas. Today we have with us two special guests. One is Larry Sager. Larry Sager is the Alice Jane Drysdale. Am I saying this right? Alice Jane Drysdale Sheffield. Sheffield Region <laughs> Chair at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, Larry. Hi there. It's great to see both of you. Thanks for coming. And we also have Professor Micah Schwarzman, who is the Hardy Cross Dillard Professor of Law and the Roy Ellen Rosamond Woodruff Morgan Professor of Law and also the Director of the Carr Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia. Did I get this right? Yes. Thanks, Nico. <laughs> so both uh, Larry and Micah are in Oxford because there, there was a conference who just finished on religion, and they each presented papers there. It was a great opportunity for us to have them both on the podcast. Both have written on religion from various angles, and Professor Sager's paper, the one that he presented at the conference, which he co-authored with Mark Greenberg of UCLA, is exactly about the correct way to understand freedom of religion. So the paper develops a moral account of religious freedom, which is based on the requirement of treating people as equals. Not treating people equally, but treating people as equals. Or, as he, I think, prefers to put it, a requirement of equal regard on the part of the government. So how about we begin with Larry saying a few things about his paper. The paper I wrote with Mark Greenberg has a negative and a positive claim. The negative claim is that a traditional view of religious liberty, which would give religious believers some distinct liberty interest, is morally untenable. It's untenable because it's impossible to give a morally attractive meaning to religion in this situation. If you single out traditional religions, that's inherently arbitrary. If instead you say that beliefs that function in a person's life in a certain way, or beliefs about certain matters like the ultimate meaning of life, if you move to that view, then it turns out the most horrible, selfish, racist, in every other possible sense, ugly views qualify as religion. So that requires an account of religious freedom to find a different starting point And the starting point that seems to us most promising is that of treating people as equals or equal regard. We have a relatively precise definition of what that means for at least working purposes, and it turns on the idea of devaluative attitudes. Attitudes of hatred, hostility, aggression, disgust, sort of targeted indifference, Those are devaluative attitudes. And we think decisions which are motivated by devaluative attitudes, in the sense they're made by governments in response to devaluative attitudes in the community that those governments serve, or decisions which are perceived as motivated by devaluative attitudes, and thus send a message of devaluation that either of those appearances of devaluative attitudes constitute a failure of equal regard. And the heart of the paper, having set that out, is to look at some specific and interesting applications of this idea. One in the case of 
mandatory immunization policy. Another, full of amusing twists, but actually conceptual difficulties, is Saturday observers who begin with the Sabbath but quickly move to football observers. So it's in those two contexts that we, in effect, test drive this view. Can you say a bit more about the idea of motivation? You mentioned it as one of the possible grounds on which to exclude some government policy. One was being motivated by perception of less than equal regard in respect of some group or some individual. And the other one was it being perceived as such. So, of course, there is in the literature this kind of objection regarding using motivation as the test. The reason being that the motivations may be conflicting, the way in which laws are passed are such that you have different houses of parliament or different houses of congress. People might have conflicting motivations or no motivations at all. And for these reasons, it is widely thought that a psychological conception of motivation is not what we're looking after. The same concern about uh, not just motivation, but attributing collective intention to an institution in, in, in interpreting particular laws and legislation, it's not specific to religion. But I understand that Larry and Mark's proposal accepts that institutions may have intentions, collective intentions? No, oh. I think not. All right, um, okay. We believe that groups can have intentions, All right, but not complex institutional arrangements. It is a, a claim, really, of an official decision having been caused by devaluative attitudes. But the devaluative attitudes in question are those that are, in effect, afoot in the community that the government is serving. So for our purposes, the claim is not literally motivation in the right. sense of psychological uh, states but rather the prevalence of these kinds of mental states in a political community that caused this decision. So the, the devaluative attitude has to be causally responsible for the policy, for the adoption of the policy, but it doesn't have to be represented in the mind of the agents who designed and adopt the policy. Precisely. The, the minds of the agent might be highly reactive, it might be a desire to get elected, it might be even, you know, laudable. But if made in an environment rife with devaluative attitudes, such that one can say devaluative attitudes in the community had a significant role in the outcome that's being challenged, that's the test on the, quotes, motivational side of all this. Is part of the test social scientific? Does it require some empirical inquiry in both establishing that these bad attitudes are prevalent in society, but also that they causally brought about the legislation in question. So would courts have to look at empirical data about this? Well, I should say that a limitation or a narrowed focus of Marx and my paper is the moral proposition. So if we're right, then a second and difficult question would be, how do you implement this in a legal regime? And would there be limitations? You know, would we have presumptions? Would we have tests? What kind of data would be apt? But we're in the advantage position of asking for the moment, what's the right moral picture? And then let's turn to this quite important question of how we operationalize that yes. legally. Can I ask a bit more about the causal responsibility idea? 
you are saying you, the test is whether such valid attitudes were causally responsible, and the attitude doesn't need to inhabit the minds of the legislators, for example, the policymakers, but it's enough, it's sufficient, if they are out there in the community. There is a diffuse sense that this policy matches some kind of devaluation or fits some kind of devaluation towards, say, a group. How tight does the causal connection need to be? I'm asking the moral question, not the technical right. implementation question. So how tight does the connection need to be? Is it sufficient, for instance, that something like the following? A certain group historically has been on the receiving end of discrimination and devaluative attitudes. Any policy that is perceived to affect that group in an adverse way may also be perceived as another move in that devaluation game. Is that enough? No. The way we would characterize the kind of group you describe is it would it be a group that were the losers or victims of structural injustice. Some would use the term subordination for Mark and for me the terms are interchangeable. We think that the fact that a group that is harmed by a decision in the religious exemption context is the group that suffers structural injustice is evidentiary of the question of their being a failure of equal regard and devaluative attitudes, but only evidentiary. We offer a hypothetical that indicates how you could have clear victims of structural injustice clearly losing a request for exemptions, but not have reason to believe that there was a failure of equal regard. And the example is a public hospital adopts a mandatory vaccination policy for its staff. And the group that represents the African-American or black American members of the staff asks for an exemption on behalf of the black members of the staff and says, look, the syphilis experiment in Alabama, the stealing of Mrs. Lack's DNA strain, and a variety of other terrible encounters between black Americans and public health justify blacks as not being willing to submit to vaccination. And we say, look, the hospital might look at that and say, we sort of understand those feelings, but we're simply declining to give you this exemption. That needn't be seen as caused by devaluative attitudes. But there might be other situations where the existence of systematic bad judgments would be decisive. So a famous case in the United States is when a Seventh-day Adventist can't find any job that doesn't require her to work on Saturday and she applies for unemployment insurance and the South Carolina Unemployment Insurance Commission in a state where Sunday observers would never be put to this choice says that's not good cause. Well, especially 30 years ago, but even today, the orthodox religious views of Christians who have this particular heresy is quite vicious. And that entrenched distaste is reasonably good evidence that devaluative attitudes underlay this ad hoc decision by the Unemployment Insurance Commission. So these things are evidentiary, but they are, not cons they are neither necessary nor sufficient nor constitutive of a failure of equal regard. Larry, if you don't look just at the motivation or if the um, 
history and the attitude you describe is just evidence for whether they've caused the policy. What else are you looking at? Is the question of whether the measure taken is necessary to promote the public goal in question? Is that part of the explanation? Or are you just looking at the causal question of whether these bad attitudes have caused the policy? Could, could the question of motivation be raised independently of looking at the substance of the policy and whether the restriction in question is necessary? In the example you gave of immunization, it seems to me that a lot of explanation there is that actually this is a reasonable policy. And despite the history of discrimination, if you look at the substance of the policy, we can justify it in objective, neutral terms, so the worry there is not so, so strong. Is the substance of the policy and whether it is necessary to promote the goal part of the, of the test? I wouldn't use necessary, but the reasonability or importance of a policy will bear on the question of whether it is the product of or perceived as being the product of devaluative attitudes. So the moral gravamen is one that turns on the actual or perceived role of devaluative attitudes, but the reasonability or importance of the policy will bear on that question directly. So you could have a very important policy, which is reasonable and justifiable, combined with devaluative attitudes. That's a possibility. In, in which case you have opposing, if you like, reasons here. One is the causal story about the devaluative attitudes contributing to the policy, which would suggest it shouldn't stand. But on the other hand, you'll have a valid objective reason why this policy is justified, pulling in the other direction. Yes, if the interest gets high enough, then it will be hard to say that the devaluative attitudes had a significant role. But in most cases where the decision will be in some ways at the margin, then it will matter whether the policy, and especially the distinction in treatment, in those cases where there is distinct treatment, it will matter to the question of devaluative attitudes. So that in South Carolina, for example, the fact that the legislature in a variety of ways had protected the Sabbath observing interests of Sunday observers mm. makes this picture look worse. It seems as if you want to look at the substance of the policy under the same dialectic as the motivation and the history of the group, that is, as part of the causal story, or what contributed to the, to the policy we have in front of us. A different way of looking at it is to begin with the substance of the policy. And if you see that this policy wouldn't be actually necessary in the circumstances, to treat this as inferentially as having been caused by devaluative attitudes. So you look at the substance first, you find it a little bit unreasonable, and then you make an inference, why else would there be this policy here but for devaluative attitudes? So this is a different dialectic, and I think that's not your test, is it? Well, I think in some, in some cases it would play out this way. Okay. I mean, for example, an objection to the view that has been raised is this view depends on the existence of differences in treatment. And if you don't have a comparator, you can't make this case out. And Mark and I insist that that is wrong, that there can be cases where the simple failure to accommodate a very strong interest, which might happen to be religious, with very thin reasons, would support a view that there'd been a failure of equal regard. So that, in effect, nothing about what we've said so far actually suggests that you need to proceed in either direction. I see. That you need to start with looking for the devaluative attitudes or start with the strength or weakness as long as at the end of the day the question you are answering is 
did devaluative attitudes play a significant role? Can I mention a case where, yes. where these issues were, Absolutely. were front and center, which is the travel ban case, right? So, Trump measures. Yeah, the Trump measures. Just after his inauguration, he enacts what was widely perceived and probably intended to be a ban on, uh, on Muslim immigration into the United States. And there is enormous evidence of animus, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. rank religious bigotry on the part of the President of the United States. And uh, there is litigation brought immediately to enjoin the travel ban on the grounds that it's a uh, violation of religious freedom, uh, marshalling this evidence of animus. And here's a case where you've got disparaging attitudes, clear evidence of disparaging attitudes. And the government's response is, no, there are independent national security justifications for this. And over time, as that policy is revised, the argument goes, even if there had been disparaging views or animus uh, in the initial formulation, later formulations shed those motivations. And what we're left with is a policy that has serious independent national security justifications. And then the question is, well, there are questions of taint, but even setting those aside, what do you do in a mixed motive case where you do have disparaging attitudes, but you might also have independent justification? By the way, what happened? I remember that the Muslim ban was initially, there was an injunction by a federal judge. He went to the Supreme Court. I, I'm trying to remember now. There were, there were multiple iterations of the policy in right. the Supreme Court, and a divided decision upheld the policy. With in the end, they in did the uphold end. it, yes. Correct. But in, initially, they did stay out of it, right? They right. let the injunction right. there stand. Were, there were appellate decisions in the Fourth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit that uh, enjoined the policy, partially on administrative law grounds, partially on constitutional law grounds, involving religious freedom. And but the, the administration revised its policy. And they cleaned up the record. Correct. Yeah. And they yeah. cleaned up the policy. They, they made the policy, the policy yeah. less nakedly uh, <laughs> biased. Muslim. I agree. These are the most interesting cases where you have in the mix both potentially good reasons. I'm, I'm a little skeptical that that particular Fair policy enough. had any good reasons behind it, but let's right. pretend it had. Any kind of consideration you have in mind, divided attitudes are being perceived as being moved by valid attitudes, and how do we deal with that? And one perfectly reasonable answer to that is, you know, let's let's hear the details. Let's see what the details are. So you mentioned the example of vaccination of hospital staff and black people traditionally distrusting the health authorities. But here it's more plausible to believe that there is a very strong public health justification for that policy. Pandemic, people dying. Uh, how about a somewhat weaker, still very strong to my mind, but somewhat weaker case in favor of the policy on grounds of public health uh, mixed up with the valid attitudes? So in 2015, if I remember correctly, there was an initiative in California. The California legislature changed the regulations about school governors accepting applications to register kids at school. In the past, it used to be the case that all the kids, in order to be registered, had to be vaccinated for measles, among other things, unless the parents could produce a medical certificate showing there are strong medical reasons why the kid shouldn't be vaccinated, or the parents produced a document they drafted, they wrote themselves, saying they have philosophical objections to vaccination. And then after an outbreak of measles in California, a couple of pediatric uh, physicians who are legislators there, I don't remember their names, pushed and the moment was right and the law was changed, then now the governors would only accept a medical certificate and no so-called philosophical exemption. There, there's evidently, obviously, very strong reasons for all kids to be vaccinated against measles. 
There's no question about that. There is, the policy is excellent and it should stand. But let's suppose, let's just imagine that at the same time, the prevailing feeling in the community is that anti-vaxxers are idiots. They are reactionary, uneducated people who are not pulling their weight in public affairs and this policy would teach these people a lesson. Suppose these attitudes are prevalent in the community. So what do we do then? Well, one thing I want to draw a distinction because it's pretty important. The distinction is between thinking that this is just medically wrong, you know, that the anti-vaxxing uh, policy that's based on its connection to autism is wrong and deeply it's, wrong. It's morally wrong. Uh, it's morally wrong, but it is scientifically wrong. To move from that to the idea of devaluative attitudes would mean that error gave you protection. So a devaluative attitude has to be a different kind of hostility. It's very hard to get a grip on the mental state you're describing, right? You know these people have committed a mistake. You know these people's mistake may return measles to your community. I'm old enough to have been a, of the generation <laughs> that got measles. Of course. Uh, it turns out measles is pretty dangerous. About well, one person, one kid in ten may end up in the hospital, and it's grown-ups you know, can. You know, so it's very hard much. to see where there's space for devaluative attitudes. It's clear they're oh. wrong. It's clear they're threatening to the community. Right. I don't know where by you know well, where where devaluation well, enters here's the story. How. These people have a particular social profile. People, you know, give stereotypes. They think of these people as the same kind of people who, you know, like to homeschool their kids and maybe are driven by quacky doctrines of other kinds. And let's just imagine that they are looked down upon by most members of the community. Well, then, I, you know, then it seems to me that the idea of what it means for something to have a significant role in causation would have to be unpacked. Suppose we are absolutely confident that this decision would have come out the same way without a tinge of devaluative attitudes. Right. Then it seems to me possible right. to say that it doesn't have a significant okay. role. There's one other thing I want to say, and this is quite important in the vaccination context. What I think a state cannot do is create a religious exemption but withhold a philosophical or medical anti-vaxation exemption. Sure. I think states are not obliged to grant a religious exemption, and I think that once they do, they are obliged to extend the exemption across the aisle, as it were. And that makes the only sane vaccination policy one of medical necessity only. So in your discussion of Dworkin's view, you are keen to distinguish your position from Dworkin's position, among other reasons for the following reason. Dworkin rejects the psychological conception of political motivation, and he asks what kind of justification exists for the policy. This is the test. And he says that if the kind of motivation in that sense for the policy is an attitude of disrespect or an attitude of considering the way the people who are affected live their lives as inferior, then the policy doesn't stand. It is qualified. But if there is a good faith justification that makes no such judgment about how others live, 
then the policy can stand. And one of the objections that you and Mark raise is that then the test has no bite because for any policy backed by a devaluative attitude, there will be in the neighborhood some kind of objective justification for the policy. So if you ban certain religious practices on the grounds that people who live that way are less worthy of respect, then that's not okay. But sure enough, there must be some kind of objective justification for prohibiting the kind of behavior that these people want to engage in. And this is your objection to Dworkin's it's way a, it, of dealing it is with it. It is especially concerning with regard to Dworkin because rejecting the mental state view of this, Dworkin is offering an interpretive view of this. And a Dworkinian interpretation of the law will put it in its best light. That's our obligation. So, so would, the best light will always... You'll be pulled to a good justification. You'll be pulled to the, right. to the good justification that sits immediately well, adjacent. I, I, right wonder, I wonder about that, though, because that reminds me of the way this plays out in court. And Micah's example of the, the Trump policy is a good example of that. Sure. Every government, when called upon to justify their policy, will invoke... Assuming yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll dig around. They'll dig around. A good, a uh, good public reason. interest, public health, yeah. national, security, national security, rights of others. So at the first things that that was going to happen in court, and the court, at least the European court, courts in Europe, will very quickly say, yeah, that's a legitimate aim. So we're good here. Now let's move further and look at the details of the case. And they will do this under the test of proportionality. They will dig deeper and see what is the justification for the policy. Would the policy necessitate that restriction? Could the policy be served by a different, less restrictive alternative? They will ask these kind of questions, and then at the end they might conclude that this measure is disproportionate. Now, one way to describe that conclusion would be effectively to say, well, the government said there was a legitimate reason, but the reason actually wasn't legitimate. The reason was contempt for the lifestyle and the life choices of the group. So you, you may begin to suggest there's always a legitimate reason, but whether in fact there is will depend on the kind of test that you put forward. So I don't think it follows by looking at the justification for the policy that any good reason would do. Any good reason would do in, in principle, but then you have to ask these further questions. Is it necessary to take this measure to promote this policy? And if it isn't, then you start getting worried about the valuative attitudes. And the hidden motivation. The hidden motivation. What you say may be quite sensible as a general approach to tests that turn on the existence of a motivation or an attitude which is fatal. I was responding, though, to Nikos's specific invocation of Dworkin. And Dworkin's attempt to avoid anything like a general liberty claim is to say that the government can't say of people who want to cut down trees let's mm-hmm. say, that it is a bad kind of person who goes around cutting down trees. But the government can say, trees are really good, and we don't right. want them cut down. And that's why in this particular approach, which we really haven't discussed, but which we talk about in the paper, Dworkin's approach is peculiarly vulnerable to, uh, this, kind uh, to, of to, to this kind of Can difficulty. we discuss the example you give in the paper? So the example is... The government can't say we need more people around because pension scheme is collapsing. So let's give some tax cuts to families with many children. But in my view, the government cannot use the same justification for banning abortion. And it seems to me that you can distinguish between the two because the first case where the public reason, if you like, that we need more people around can be pursued by just giving incentives for people and supporting big families. 
you don't need to go as far as banning abortion. When you ban abortion, you actually rely on a different kind of consideration, which is that you want to control decisions by women on the sanctity of life. And then that's a different story. So you, the idea of life being important and one more people around can play out in one way, in one example, and different way in another example. You think it plays out the same way, that if the government can say, let's give tax credits for families with more than three children, then why can we not say let's ban abortion with the same reason? I think it plays out that way under Dworkin's theory. This is right. a specific grounds of doubt for Dworkin. Dworkin turns to equality in his theory, but only with regard to sacred duties. And at that point, the problem of defining religion has been reinstated as the problem of defining a sacred duty. Sure. And right. the difficulties that I said we were strenuously committed to avoiding, which incidentally Dworkin is motivated to avoid. He walks back into when he turns to sacred duties. And I think if he had just gone with equal concern and respect, eliminated sacred duties... He would be fine. He'd be fine, (laughs) and then he could talk with us, or we could talk retrospectively with him. Tragically, we don't have that opportunity about what equal concern or equal respect is like. And that's where we find ourselves. I understood George's comments to push in the direction of defending working against this kind of vulnerability. I think his point is that it wouldn't be so easy for someone to argue in favor of a policy which is, we very strongly suspect, caused by the wrong kind of motivation. It wouldn't be so easy for the government just to jump to the next available non-divalative justification in the neighborhood and put that forward. Mm -hmm. So it would need to work much harder. So George was anyhow trying to argue for the view that working is not so vulnerable to the objection. But my question was the reverse. How come you are not vulnerable to the same objection, given that under your scheme, for any policy which is backed by divided attitudes either on the part of the government or in the community, there exists some kind of respectable justification. And how come you don't have the same problem that you imputed working? Well, we take it up in the paper. It's a fair question. Sure. And I think it's because the question being asked is a different one. We're asking, first of all, are there devaluative attitudes in the community? on the motivation side. Are there devaluative attitudes? That's a question of fact. And then we ask, is it the case that those devaluative attitudes played a significant role in this decision? At that point, I think the kind of inquiry that George was describing that a proportionality regime might undertake would be, in fact, an evidentiary element in the picture. How great a justification is there Would it be evidentiary or constitutive of the the violation? Because if there are good policy reasons and they can be objectively justified, that's no longer epistemic. It's not really evidence for whether there's a violation. It would make it uh, or not make it a violation constitutively. It wouldn't be evidentiary anymore, would it? Uh, No, I think it would be evidentiary because our theory is not a general theory of liberty which some proportionality review really seems to presume, right? That a baseline that you are free to act unless the state has a good enough reason. It would be an interesting conversation, which we don't have with ourselves or the world, is a general liberty interest the right way to think about justice. 
But if the question is not that, but rather what is characterized as religious liberty, the fact that religion is in the picture offers no special liberty claim. And we think what distinguishes the religion cases is the fact that they are often decided across religion, religious fault lines, mm -hmm. either distinguishing between religions or distinguishing between mm -hmm. religion and non-religion, or simply the source of hostility. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, we don't think a liberty analysis is appropriate. And only under a liberty analysis, I think, would you get to the point where the failure of a good enough reason would be constitutive of the wrong. Mm -hmm. For us, the question is, is, has there been a failure to treat people as equals? And that's more limited. This is extremely interesting. Thank you very much, Larry. In the second part of this episode, we'll discuss the idea of slipping from secularism which is the subject of Micah Schwarzman's paper for the conference earlier today. I'm George Letzas. And I'm Nikos Avropoulos. And this was The Jewish Prudes, a podcast in legal philosophy.